Michael Coppy is on the line. Michael wrote a new book called Words and Music Into the Future, Songwriting Treaties and Manifesto, and I enjoyed reading it so much that I thought I'd share it with everybody. And Michael Coppy is on the phone. Hi, Michael. How you doing, Michael Stock? Good. Now, uh, tell me, what is a treatise and manifesto? Well, a treatise, uh, I think, is the proper pronunciation. Treatise, okay. And manifesto. Uh, I think the uh, literary taxonomy on, on treatise would be that it's a uh, look at the way things are, uh, an examination um, of how things exist right now. And a manifesto uh, as a, is a call to arms. Uh, let's change things and make them better. And since I do so much examination of the way the popular music world exists right now, I had to kind of divide this up um, uh, into treatise and manifesto. But um, it's, a, it's a, uh, an incisive, uh, often eviscerating look at the world of popular songwriting as it exists uh, in recent years. Has, have you always been upset with the status of popular music? The quality of the writing, and I'm not talking about the quality of the composing. I like to split those two things. We always talk about popular music, but really the, the writing is the lyrics, composing is the music. Yes, I remember growing up as a boy in Tallahassee, Florida, upstate there. You'd sing these songs. I'd sing these songs earnestly that were, that were told by uh, the, the powers that be, uh, that were great anthems, uh, stuff by uh, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, whoever the hell's Joni Mitchell, and constantly I had the wondering in my mind, does this really make sense, what they're saying here? Is this really a coherent uh, message, well presented? And most times it's not, quite frankly. Um, I always felt that way, yeah. And as I got older, um, I think I, my, I, I became more discerning and demanding as well. Michael Coppi is on the line. His new book is Words and Music, Into the Future. Uh, you were born in Tallahassee. How did you end up in San Francisco? Uh, during the summer of love, I hitchhiked out there a long, long time ago. <laughs> Did you have a music career there? Uh, no, I produced a lot. I uh, produced a lot of different kind of things. Directed musicals, uh, produced, uh, directed television. There, organized a bargaining unit of the union at ABC in San Francisco, the Directors Guild of America. Uh, did the occasional concert. When Dwight Yoakam got uh, Buck Owens out of retirement, I produced Buck's first two concerts on his uh, comeback there in Sacramento and San Francisco. Uh, did a lot of different things, a lot of different things, but I didn't play music. And I'll tell you the, the anecdote about that. I was doing all these different uh, concerts and, and plays and uh, musicals and television and film events, and I was on the phone one time with Bill Graham, the legendary, I guess legendary is the term, rock and roll promoter. Sure. I did not know, did not know Bill well, but I, we were just a small enough town. I talked to him a few times on the phone. And in his... Bronx or Brooklyn accent, which I can't quite do, he said to me, I think the first time we talked, he says, well, you, you do too many things. And I said, kind of hurt, meek. Well, but they're all, they're all successful. And he responded, yeah, I know that, but you can't do that. People in this business don't like it if you do too many things. Most of them can't do the one job they got. And he was right, and, and that's one reason that I gave up performing. I was doing too many things. I was producing and directing too many different kind of things, and uh, I thought it would be uh, it would muddy the waters were I to be in front of the uh, uh, microphones and write as well. So what do you do now? Uh, I work at uh, in, in, in mostly blue-collar work here in the movie studios in Los Angeles. Sony Studios is about a mile and a half from me, and uh, Manhattan Beach Studios where they're doing the next Avatar and Avatar beyond that not so far away. 
and uh, and play music. I had a, about a year gig at a bar in, in Culver City here that ended oh, a few months ago. Um, but this book has been in gestation for a long, long time. It started out as a uh, series of essays. There's 59 chapters in Words and Music into the Future. That's actually the shorthand name for the book, Words and Music into the Future. A lot of it is vetching um, and uh, eviscerations of uh, very revered, exalted popular songs from the last few decades. I try not to use anything or examine anything by Jason Mraz or Megan Trainer or Max Martin, anything that's recent, because I want to find common ground. Most people have heard And I Love Her by Paul McCartney. They've heard The Night They, Gro- they Drove Old Dixie Down by Robbie Robertson. You start the book off criticizing most of the most iconic songs, American exactly. Pie. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> a song that sometimes you look on the Internet called, quote, the best song ever written. Oh, my God. Well, you know, the title of the chapter, the titles are sometimes uh, flippant or uh, playful. The t- title of that chapter is, No, Don, the levee wasn't dry and no one was drinking whiskey and rye. And the point that I make there is, first off, the chorus of that song repeats seven times. It's a long song. It's a bouncy, jaunty melody. Uh, sure, fine. But the chorus repeats seven times, and levees are never wet or dry unless it's been a recent rainstorm or somebody dropped a soda pop. A levee is not a body of water. It's an earthwork that contains a body of water. Yes. Now, Michael, yeah, okay. I maintain, I assert there's nothing intrinsically wrong with misusing uh, uh, words here and there in passing if you're getting to a big thought and it's obscured by the rest of the material. In American Pie, that's hammered home at us seven times. There's no excuse for it. Bad writing. Well, now, because of that, every time I listen to that song, you're going to come to my <laughs> mind. And every time I listen to This Land is Your Land, I'm going to say, hey, wait a minute, the Redwood Forest is in California. You're repeating yourself, Woody. Well, good. That's what, uh, you know, the guy from the San Francisco Examiner, the, I did an interview with him just about a week ago, and he says, this book seems like a wake-up call. And I said, you know, yeah, wake up. Michael Stock, we have been inundated. We have been deluged over the decades with poorly written crap, from the, and the, which the music industry just hammers home markets with freight train determination. And I think it's time. I think we deserve better writing. Now, I want to point out to people listening, I also, in Words and Music Into the Future, highlight some very well-written songs in my estimation. Uh, El Paso by Marty Robbins, The Gambler by Don Schlitt, um, uh, others. So it's not just a, an attack. Uh, a friend of mine in New York, an art history professor, said, you know, it reminds me of The Painted Word by Tom Wolfe to some extent. I don't know if you're familiar with that book from about 30 years ago, in which he just hammers modern art. And I told him, I said, Richard, you're correct to some extent, except that unlike Tom Wolfe, I also propose uh, positive changes, and I find the positives in contemporary songwriting as well. I enjoy reading it so much, even though I'm not a songwriter. Tell me, why is, why is a perfect rhyme so important? Um, a perfect rhyme is not important, I think, and I think it's something that we're trying to get away from. I think rap music um, has just... Uh, explored a wild west of uh, rhymes, uh, quote-unquote rhymes, because they're not perfect rhymes, and it really opens up the language. Perfect rhyme, however, is something, certainly it's practiced by Stephen Sondheim to excellent effect. 
Um, but it's something that I think is needed in a comedy song. I do point that out. There's a chapter on comedy writing. There's a chapter on anthems, um, chapters on uh, music from Nashville and rap music generally, rock and roll. And, um, but in a comedy song, I think you need perfect rhymes. It's, uh, it's part of hammering home the joke, basically. Another one of your chapters is on literary modernism as it pertains to popular songs. First of all, what is modernism? Uh, well, it might be as best evinced by uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, the poem The Wasteland, or, or Joyce's Ulysses, uh, modernist literature, which is so uh, arcane and dense that it becomes as much uh, a word game, uh, solving a demanding puzzle as uh, uh, encountering illumination. And I think that uh, when modernism, I think it's uh, songwriting, the Dylan-esque kind of songwriting, which I, Bob Dylan's a bad writer. I mean, uh, it's just, that's just a fact as far as I'm concerned. But modernism has allowed, um, what's the word, licensed the kind of poor writing that is evinced in so many exalted rock and roll and, and popular songs, including Bob Dylan stuff, um, where the, uh, the, there's so much language tossed out and so much disconnected language, and it's the auditor's job to impute meaning, to infer substance there. And most often, in so many cases, it's just not there. It's just not there. There was an experiment I did on myself a few years ago. I heard of a Bob Dylan song which I had never heard, and it was a, a hit by another performer. I'm not going to reveal the name of it for a reason. But I said, oh, great, here's a chance to look at a piece of his material without being swayed by the, the musicianship, which is always great on a Bob Dylan record. He gets great musicians, and the sound and, and the tune. So I printed out those lyrics, studied them, and I studied them. And, you know, it was just a, it's really a, a, a disparate, a dissolute mess. Okay. Eighteen months later, I said, Michael, you may have forgotten something. You may have missed something. Do it again. I did it again and came to the same conclusion. Now, the reason I don't reveal the song is I advise people, do the same thing. Find us a Bob Dylan song you've never heard. Print out the lyrics. And don't just lean over and say, sure, I guess he might be talking. He might be thinking this. This is what he's probably saying. Find factual references. See if there's an actual coherence there. And most likely there isn't. Michael Coppi is on the line. His new book is called Words and Music, uh, Into the Future, a Songwriting Treatise and Manifesto. Now, you mentioned Bob Dylan's name, and now, now you've touched a nerve, Michael. <laughs> this is a guy who brought poetry into rock music. The, the, the characterization, quote, it's poetry, unquote, I, I find is a, as a dodge, basically. It's the refuge for the inarticulate. If you find a song that doesn't quite make sense uh, and someone is a champion of that song, and they recognize as well that it doesn't really hold together, the writing doesn't really hold together, the response is, but it's poetry! <laughs> as if being poetry makes it exalted and better and it's supposed to be convoluted and recondite. That's not what poetry is about. Poetry is about precision in language. Well, you talk a lot about Bob Dylan. You Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> be because he had such a big impact in popular exactly. culture. Exactly, right. It's, it's necessary. If you're going to take on the, uh, the writing that's, in pop, that's, uh, that's ascended in popular songs today, you've got to deal with Bob Dylan. You just have to because he's the lionized king of it all. I mean, the, the Nobel winner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with dealing with Bob Dylan is that there's so much 
uh, incrustations that surround the topic. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the ardent, um, effulgent uh, sycophancy of his fans, the uh, what, Dylanoids, uh, Dylanologists, I call them Dylanoids. Um, there was a conference recently at the University of Tulsa, the world of Bob Dylan, all these academics attending, and it's just, it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. Bob is not a good writer. He's <laughs> just not. I have a funny um, story. Uh, a friend recently uh, told me that when she saw the movie Inside Lewin Davis, and the main mm-hmm. main song in that movie was Dink's song, an old song collected by Alan Lomax with no author, more or less. And when she found out, uh, she did some research and found that Bob Dylan had the copyright for this traditional song. He's done that with so many songs. And that's why I say when you talk about Dylan, because he's the king of songwriting, if you want to call him that, in, in, in our age, you have to deal with the fact that he's a rampant plagiarist. Now, that, and I, many people know this. These are, the articles have been written all over that place. But I had to include a lot of research in my book on the chapter on plagiarism, which also deals with Led Zeppelin and Paul Simon and Johnny Cash and others, but primarily Dylan, because he does it so much more rapaciously than other performers. And one thing that always bothers me when people talk about his plagiarism is, is the, uh, they, they forgive it. And the term they use is, he's being a magpie. He's just a lovable little rogue. No, he's a plagiarist. He's a thief. And the worst aspect of it is not even that he gets the money for this stuff, but that he wants to hide the fact that he's plagiarizing people. That's the damage. I wrote this. I, Bob Dylan, wrote this line, not from that movie or whatever I stole the line here or there. Well, along, Absolutely reprehensible. You make the point in your book as well that Woody Guthrie and, and a lot of these songs take what's called a folk process where they borrow melodies and switch the tunes or switch the words. It seems like in the technology age with computers, if you do that, it's all of a sudden plagiarism. Well, I, 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 you're, you're, you're touching on an interesting aspect of it. Sure, Woody Guthrie did that, and people all throughout history have done that kind of thing. But not to the rapacious disregard that is evinced by contemporary uh, acts, and Dylan being one of them, of course. And I think were Guthrie able to monetize his uh, uh, borrowings, feelings, liftings, whatever, uh, he would have been a much more problematic uh, uh, personality uh, to address. But it wasn't really available to him at the time. It's the kind of thing that came in with the 60s or the, and tape recording and everything else and, and the, the mass market uh, of, of popular music. A, a question that always comes up with folk music is the Lomaxes. Alan and John Lomax, they went and yeah. discovered a lot of music that otherwise would not have been recorded, a.k.a. Lead Belly. Yet Lomaxes did not write those songs, yet they take credit for it. Yeah, I know, I know. That's another problematic uh, topic. I think I addressed uh, John Lomax's work. Yes, I do, uh, toward the middle of the book. He would copyright stuff, that he would find a great old cowboy song in public domain, a folk song, and he would copyright it. And my feeling about that is, I mean, look, the world's not black and white, okay? When I, when I castigate Bob Dylan as a, uh, a thief, I also want to point out, I think he's a capable composer. He has come up with some original melodies that are quite affecting. So throughout my book, it's, there's never black and white here. There's always shades of gray, and nobody's a devil, nobody's the hero. As concerns John Lomax, he would copyright material that he found, and I don't excuse it necessarily, but I'm thankful that it didn't get to the Disney Corporation to copyright, because John Lomax and Alan Lomax were actually out there trying to find material uh, as, as scholars, as academics. 
He copyrighted the stuff. Not good. Uh, if he had allowed the uh, uh, allocated the profits, maybe to go somewhere else, might have been more uh, um, admirable or angelic. But he he wasn't the Disney Corporation or 20th Century Fox, and I think that's a legitimate observation in that regard. Michael Coppi is on the line. His new book, Words and Music into the Future, a songwriting treatise and manifesto. So you wrote this for songwriters? Uh, for for songwriters, yes. Well, the, the last uh, third of the book or so, or a quarter of the book, is actual down-in-the-dirt advice on writing better songs, um, on how to go about it, uh, things to look for. Uh, yeah, yeah, but words and music into the future, the first half of it is is a uh, cultural commentary on, on contemporary popular music and the popular entertainment industry, I think. It's a lot of fun um, so to read, both. too. It's so much fun to read. I, I'm just curious, what's, what's your education level? Uh, I was uh, expelled from Tallahassee Leon High School a long time ago for being a lefty. <laughs> and I've done some college. That's all right. Well, that's... It's it's very erudite and it's an enjoyable read and I I thoroughly enjoyed going through your book. It's so difficult to come up with a new melody, a new a new a new word to create to be creative. It's so difficult. Is there any clues on how to be creative? Well, yeah. Well, one point I, I make about uh, people who lift traditional songs, which to me is like taking a bulldozer through a graveyard. Um, you know, this is. These tunes have been uh, taken and turned into pop songs so often. Now, if you want to take a traditional song or something by Andrew Lloyd Webber or whoever the hell, Matt Martin, whoever, and make an original song from it, I'll tell you how to do it right now. It's in the book as well. Take the song, keep singing it over and over to yourself. Start changing where you're taking your voice so it goes to different notes here and there. If you're playing it on guitar or piano, go to different chords in the middle of redoing that song over again keep changing keep going farther and farther and sooner or later you'll have a tune a melody that is so different from where you started that it may be indeed a legitimate original song unless of course you've arrived on somebody else's copyrighted material but just take that song uh, this land is your land whatever the heck and just keep changing it as you play it again and again and you hope, one hopes, you'll get to the point where you've got a, an original song that only you know whence it derived. There you go. You don't have to steal. you got to work. Okay, so you have a good song that's, that's uh, literarily correct. How do you make it popular? Find an intelligent audience. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's a wake-up call, or as the guy from the San Francisco Examiner said, it's a wake-up call. We deserve better, Michael. We deserve better writing. We deserve better movies as well, better television. But in popular song, we certainly deserve it. There's no question about it. Popular songs carry so little information generally that what happens in, in culture, and we see it all the time, is that it's the music acts that add on so much plastered encrustations, the, the flamboyant dressing and the, the uh, uh, reinventing themselves with a new set of costuming and, and whatever other kind of crap. It should, it should be in the writing. It should be in the writing. Another prediction I make for the future, it's called Words and Music into the Future, is that I think 100 years from now, people uh, singing blues songs and trying to be sounding like the old blues performer kind of thing, which you hear all the time, will be viewed the same way we look at performing in blackface today. It's a, um, 
uh, an insulting appropriation, uh, uh, condescending appropriation of rural black culture. I just I think it's reprehensible. If a song is well written, it should stand on its own. You don't need to affect the posture. Michael Copy, his book is called <laughs> Words and Music into the Future. How do we get a hold of your book? Uh, Amazon or Ingram. And uh, I advise people if they go to Amazon to not buy a used copy, not because I make much bucks off of this. This is really more of a mission than a, an enterprise. But to get a, a, a new copy because this thing is constantly revised. The way it was written was, like I said, there's 59 essays. But I put it on my website over a couple of years, and people would write me in and say, you're wrong about that, or, you know, here's something else that supports what you're saying, Michael, or did you ever think about this, or did you know about that? And so it's constantly revised and attuned. The, the uh, assertions, the uh, conclusions really haven't changed, because I think they're pretty solid. But a lot of the factual material and the writing itself is much better presented, so I advise people I tell my friends, look, get a new copy. Don't get a used copy. Those are all uh, advanced review copies that were sent out months ago, and there's been hundreds of changes since then. That's the nice thing about print on demand. You can change things and edit them all the time. So words and music into the future from Amazon or from Ingram at your bookstore. And, uh, One last thing. I, I just love yeah. the quotes you have it. Your, your footnotes are fun to read. The appendix <laughs> I, I enjoy going through. Quotes. Are you still collect? Do you, do you collect quotes? No, but um, when you have a quotation from someone famous or not so famous even, but generally someone famous at the beginning of a chapter, it's called an epigraph. And uh, for people who may be listening and don't know that, but uh, I find that using an epigraph is a real nice way of zeroing in, pointing direction, saving a lot of paragraphs of writing. Here's where we're going here on this chapter. The epigraph kind of says that. So there's a lot of epigraphs in there. And uh, <laughs> thank you for noticing the appendix. One of the appendixes, gives biographical information, uh, just a sentence or two on all the people whose uh, epigraphs, whose quotations I used. And I, even there, I put a lot of work into it. It's not just boilerplate from Wikipedia. I tried to find interesting information. Uh, I think Napoleon Bonaparte is one of the quotes I use, uh, a, a quote from him. And in the index, in the appendix, rather, his biographical information is that he's known for the Napoleon theorem in mathematics. And Napoleon is also the person credited with giving us Odd number houses on one side of the street and even numbers on the other, which, you know, that's the kind of information that's fun to find. No, it's great. And the quotes, I'm going to have to uh, paraphrase here because I can't remember, but my favorite epitaph, I think, is from Susan Sontag. It says, I'm really not that smart. I rewrite. Exactly. Susan Sontag was a, a often brilliant cultural commentator. I also point out in the book how... Uh, Composers should study Susan Sondheim before they even name their compositions. Why? How? What? What? In her brilliant book on photography, she makes an observation almost in passing, Michael, and it's, uh, I'm paraphrasing wildly here too, but uh, a picture may be worth 10,000 words, but it is the caption, those few actual words, which define and confine the picture. And it's the same thing with a, an instrumental song. If you write an instrumental, as soon as you give it a title, you have directed all auditors to start thinking in this direction. Be it Vivaldi with the Four Seasons, right? Or, or uh, Smetana with the, the, uh, the Moldau. You, so when we have a piece of music, if the music starts first, the title 
will, will confine everyone's thinking about that piece of music, how they receive it. And the lyrics, what we have so often in contemporary popular music, because partly because you can't understand what's being said half the time, is a piece of music, or more likely just a repeating riff, unfortunately, and a title, and we think that that says something to us. And when you actually look at the lyrics, you say, what a mess, what a mess. I've wandered a little bit here, but yes, Susan Sondheim's absolutely right. I love that quote, too. What I write is smarter than I am because I rewrite it. That's it, yes. That's something I subscribe to 100%, which is why each edition of this book that comes out is a little bit more polished and a little bit better presented. I have one more question for you, Michael. You're so critical on a lot of the uh, artists out there. Have any of them confronted you? Uh, no, but fans have. <laughs> a good friend of mine, a screenwriter here in Los Angeles, very successful screenwriter, uh, loves the song uh, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, which I completely uh, expose in Chapter 2, one of the early chapters, as a very uh, misbegotten piece of writing on so many levels. But um, And he just came back and forth and back and forth with justifications for why this makes sense, quote-unquote, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and, of course, it doesn't. But what's really nice about that kind of colloquy, about that kind of back and forth, is that it allows me to address those objections. One thing when you're writing a book like this is you don't want someone to say, well, what about this? What about that? How come he didn't talk about this or that? Well, it's because I've had this back and forth with people, I'm able to address a lot of those caveats and objections. And that's great. That's really wonderful. Very helpful. I don't say it was group-funded. It wasn't, but it was certainly group-debated. Uh, and I'm in great debt to about 20 people around the country who helped me with that. Well, it certainly opened up my eyes to a, to a lot of the shortcomings in, in uh, Bob Dylan's writing and a lot of the popular songs that I'm familiar with. So I, I appreciate you taking the time and doing this. Thank you so much for the time talking to you. Next time I get down to Florida, another five years or so, I'll come see you. Excellent. Words and music into the future. Michael Coppy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael, for your time. Bye-bye.